Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, please grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. That's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. Um, just a quick note as, as you're turning there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please remember to bring your Bible to church with you. Um, you can download one for free on your smartphone, um, but what will serve you and also me and those of us who preach really well is if we are looking at what God's Word is saying to us together. It will help us as we try and understand what God is saying to us each and every Sunday morning. We're continuing our series, uh, our summer series, entitled Grace-Shaped Living. And the big idea uh, of our whole series is found right there in verse 1 of chapter 1 of, t- of the book of Titus. It's this letter from the Apostle Paul to his church-planting friend and partner, Titus. And the big idea is that the grace of God changes us. Okay? Paul puts it this way. He says, The knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. As we know the truth, this message of grace, as we experience its power in our hearts and apply it to our lives, we change. We grow in godliness. In our characters, we become more like Jesus. But the big question that I want us to ask this morning is why? Why? Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to change? Maybe you like how your life is right now. Maybe you have no desire to become a radically different person. Well, today we're going to talk about the crucial question of motivation. What is it that motivates us to live differently? That's the question that Paul addresses at the end of chapter 2. He spent the last two chapters talking about what our lives should look like. Do this, don't do this. But now he tells us why. So let's read our passage together and then I'll pray for us and ask God to help us understand what he would say to us today. So Titus chapter 2 from verse 11 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word says, Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates upon it day and night. And so, Lord, We come to your word now to meditate on it, to understand your truth and how it applies to our lives. And I thank you so much that I have the privilege of preaching the gospel this morning, good news. And I pray that you would accompany this message with the power of your spirit so that all of us would leave this place knowing that we have met with the living God and being changed. May we not be the people that we were coming into this place this morning when we leave today. 
Change us, O oh God, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great Christian thinkers of the 17th century was a Frenchman named Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician and a philosopher, and many of his insights are recorded for us in a book called Pensée. Do you like my, do you like my accent there? It's good, isn't it? Um, Pensée, which literally means thoughts. Pascal was actually working on a much bigger book um, uh, of philosophy and Christian thought, uh, and he died before he could finish it. So his followers took lots of those different sayings that Pascal had been trying to bring into one book, and they just kind of threw them all in together so that we could read them. Now, one of the things that Pascal said is particularly helpful for us this morning as we think about why we do what we do when we think about what motivates us. Pascal said this, it'll be on the screen behind me. All men and women seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man. So, here is what Pascal noticed. People always do what we believe will make us happy. That is a universal truth. Even when we do things that we really don't want to do, like getting up early in the morning to go to do a job that we hate, we do it because we believe that ultimately, being employed, getting a paycheck at the end of every month, is a happier situation for us than not getting paid, right? All of us are motivated by a vision of a happy future. That is why we do what we do. But as I discovered recently, different people look for happiness in different places. Since um, moving here about four months ago, I uh, have decided that I need to get healthier. And so one day I noticed that there was a gym just around the corner from my house. And I, um, so I walked over there um, and I thought I'd just walk in and ask to see what kind of classes they do, whether they do yoga, Pilates, all the things that I really am interested in. Um, that's a joke, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> so over I go. And I'm expecting to walk in and, be, and you know, walk into this kind of nice air-conditioned reception area, there'll maybe be some comfy seats, be met by a lovely smiling person, uh, plant life, maybe a little bit of classical music in the background. I step through the door into a wall of hip-hop. I mean, boy, that music was loud. And I, I, there was no reception area. What I do, I step into basically an aircraft hangar, okay? And on the walls were instruments of torture. Chains hung, I mean, what do they do with chains in there? There was these huge tractor tires that presumably people lift, medicine balls everywhere. Um, there was just tons and tons of freestanding weights, which I do not like. <laughs> and in the middle of this room were what I can only describe as the gods of Olympus. <laughs> I mean, these people, if they were people, were ripped. I mean, they were unbelievably stacked. They had muscles in places I didn't even know I had. And so I instantly know I have made a big mistake. But, but because I am British and a man, I cannot admit that. 
that I cannot just turn around and walk out of there and say, sorry, I'm in the wrong place. So I have to go through this big charade. So a lady, because there were, there were women there too, she comes walking over, me, over to me. I'm, you know. And she says to me, um, hey there. And I was like, I'm pretty sure the voice that should come out of that frame should be about 25 octaves lower than that. But okay. And so we get into it. She said, what are you here for? And I'm like, well, you, I mean, <clears throat> well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much into fitness, you know, and uh, I'm here to work out and uh, just interested in whether you do kind of Pilates and yoga and stuff like that. And so she starts telling us what she does, uh, what, what they do there. And she's talking about how they train like every day, morning and evening and how they basically, they diet and they don't eat anything that tastes remotely nice and, you know, and she's also started telling me about the competitions that these guys enter into, these big bodybuilding competitions. I mean, does she really think that's the best sales pitch for me? Like, but anyway, so we're having this kind of crazy conversation and she knows, doesn't she, that I'm not buying. And I know that she knows that I'm not buying. And she knows that I know that she knows that I'm not buying. And we just, we just do this thing because we kind of have to. And then at some point, I eventually kind of make my excuse and say, well, it's interesting. Oh, that much? Oh, well, money, money is, well, I'm not sure I'm going to pay that, but I think I'd better go and think about it. Anyway, goodbye. And off I go. Now, you see, why, why was I not going to go for that? Why did I not want to live my life that way? And why did she want to live her life that way? It's because we had two very different visions of what makes for a happy future. Her vision involves ripped abs and lots of bodybuilding trophies. Whereas my vision involves lots of donuts and ice cream. <laughs> That's the big difference, isn't it? That's why she's committed to live her life that way, and I am not. It's a question of motivation. As Pascal said, we do what we believe will bring us the most happiness. So what does this mean for us this morning as we think about Christian living? Simply this. There is no way that we will change anything in our lives if we do not believe that we will be happier for it. Opening our home to strangers, using our money to serve others, not drinking too much, being self-controlled, not gossiping, working conscientiously in our jobs. We will not live that way if we do not believe that, that we will be happier in that place than where we are now. Now let's talk honestly this morning. Most of the world thinks that that lifestyle that I've just described is boring, restrictive, and joyless. It infringes on our comforts, it involves sacrifice, self-denial, and restraint. That's why most people don't live like that. Frankly, it's, it's honestly, it's why most of us don't live like that. It sounds like the opposite of the pursuit of happiness. So why? Why should we live this way? That's the question that Paul seeks to answer for Titus. And the answer that he gives us is this. God's grace gives us the world that we all want. 
God's grace gives us the world that we all want. That's our big idea today, and I get it directly from the text. If you look down with me in verse 11, I've simply just paraphrased it there. Paul says, we live this way for, because, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, bringing us the world that we all want. Grace is a very Christian word, isn't it? Uh, it's what we sing about, it's, it's what we pray before we eat our dinner, it's, if we're really keen, it's what we name our kids. But what does it mean? You know, I think most of us, if we've been in church for any, any length of time, we, we'd have a good stab at what grace means. We'd say, well, it means undeserved love. God loves us even though we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. Yes, yeah, and I, I want to affirm that this morning, but, but how? How does he love us? What does that grace look like? What is so amazing about grace? You know, if I was, if I was Rick, I'd, I'd get you all to write down the answer of that question and shame you all in a little bit when, uh, when it turns out you got it all wrong, just like last week. I'm not going to, though. Um, but think about it. What is so amazing about grace? How would you answer that question? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you've got a number of answers. But I wonder whether any of us would answer that question the way that Paul does in this passage. Because here is the answer that Paul gives to that question. Grace is amazing because it makes Christ our king. Grace is amazing because it makes Christ our king. Anyone, anyone going to say that? I don't think that's how I would answer that question. But that's what Paul says. Track with me here. In verse 11 we read, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We can see what grace looks like because it has appeared. There was a moment in history when God's undeserved love towards us became visible. We could see it. And when it came... It brought also salvation with it. It brought rescue for us. Now, now notice there, the appearing of both grace and salvation are past events. We don't often think like that, particularly about salvation, but Paul says they have both appeared, past tense. So when did this happen? And what did that look like? Well, Paul actually tells us in verse 14, he says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. I want us to notice three things about that verse, verse 14. Number one, grace is most clearly seen at the cross. The ultimate act of God's grace was Jesus' death in the place of sinners. When we want to see what the grace of God looks like, the best place to look is at a man brutally slaughtered on a Roman cross. What we see there at Calvary is an act of unparalleled, selfless love. 
Christ gave himself for his people, for us, if we trust him this morning. Jesus loves you so much that he willingly died for you. You know, the scriptures tell us that we deserved crucifixion for the way in which we have lived our lives. It was us who should have been there, nailed to that cross. But he was impaled to the wood for us, in our place. Nails in his hands, nails in his feet. He suffered, he choked, he bled, he died. And he did it because he loves us. Isn't that amazing? Grace is most clearly seen at the cross. That's our first thing. But the second thing I want you to notice is at the cross, Christ bought a people for himself. His blood was not simply a way of showing us how much he loves us. It was a price that he paid. The image Paul uses here is one that was very common in the days that he was writing. It is the image of a master buying a slave. See there, Jesus redeems for himself a people of his own possession. That word redeem, well, one of the ways that we use that is when we redeem coupons or vouchers. I don't know if you're kind of a a coupon fiend, um, looking for the best deals. Paul is describing here a business transaction. And what's being bought is his people. Jesus owns those he dies for. Now, just, just hold on to that point for a moment, because I appreciate that given our current cultural context and the way that we think about slavery, uh, what I've just said is, is kind of a controversial statement. But we're going to co- just park it for a second, because we're going to come back there in a moment. So what we've seen, one, grace is seen at the cross, and two, at the cross, Christ bought himself a people. Now, the third point that we need to see here will sound very familiar, and it's this. Christ bought us by grace to change us. Paul says, Christ redeems his people from lawlessness. It's as if we have a master, lawlessness. And Jesus comes to lawlessness, he pays his own blood, and he says, you no longer own these people, I do. Now, what's the opposite of being mastered, being owned by lawlessness? It's being mastered by law. We go from living as we want, where we were slaves to lawlessness, to living under the rule of Jesus. And his purpose in our lives is to change us. He bought us to purify us and make us zealous, eager, passionate about doing good works. Grace changes us. Now again, let's be honest. That doesn't really sound like good news, does it? We used to be able to do what we wanted, and now we have to do what Jesus tells us to. We've, we've become Jesus' slaves. 
I thought we were his friends. I thought we, he came to serve us. But I like those images more in the Bible. Well, to understand why this is good news, we need to go right back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden, to a place where God was king and Adam and Eve lived under his rule. And there was only one rule, wasn't there? If you know your Bibles, you'll know what it was. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. That's it. That's, that's the only rule. Don't eat from that tree. And everything was perfect. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 tell us. It was the world that we all want. Humanity was happy under the rule of God. But in Genesis 3... That all changes with a lie. Everything goes wrong. The world is broken. And from that moment, humanity begins a desperate search for the happiness that we lost. It's a search that continues today in diets and fitness, beauty and sex, power and money, politics and institutions, family and friends, drugs and alcohol, all of us are pursuing happiness, trying to fill that craving in our hearts. But as we try and find them in all of these different things, what we come to realize, and if we live long enough, our experience tells us that none of them, none of these God substitutes ever seem to be able to fully satisfy the deepest cravings of our hearts. So what was the lie? What was the lie in Eden that that broke everything? The lie is that God is a bad king. God is a bad king. This is what the serpent said to Eve. It's going to be on the screen behind me, so don't worry about turning there. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent says to Eve, If you eat the fruit, you will not surely die. God lied. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he saying? God has lied to you. He's keeping something from you. You think you're happy, but you're not. You're oppressed. You could be like God. You could be king. So throw off his law. Rebel. Be free. And so, Eve and Adam and everyone else since have turned our backs on happiness. We rebelled against God to live without his law in our lives. But we were deceived. Lawlessness becomes our master. He enslaves us. And unlike God, his slavery leads us to pain and brokenness and death. Happiness, the world that we all want, is is only found under the good rule of God our King. We need to be rescued from lawlessness. But, you know, what hope do we have? What hope do we have of that? We need to find happiness under the rule of the king, 
but we rebelled against him. We've not only rejected his happiness, we've, con- we've condemned ourselves to an eternal destiny of unhappiness by committing an eternal act of treason against him. That's the hopelessness that we find ourselves in, except what does Paul say? Praise God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, bringing rescue for all people. The king himself comes to bear our punishment, to buy us back, and to reassert his lordship in our lives. That is amazing grace. Christ died to become our king again. Now, what is the, what is the result of the work of the cross? What, what is the result of what Christ has done for us? What it means for us is that one day we will live in the world that we all want. See, Paul speaks of a second appearing in verse 13. Grace appeared in the past, he says in verse 11. Christ came, but now, because of his work for us at Calvary, because he didn't stay dead, but rose to life and reigns today in heaven at his Father's right hand, because of these things, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, a day is coming when the king will return. And that, and rather than an appearing of grace, Paul describes it as an appearing of glory. You know, we have so little idea of how happy we will be on the day that Jesus returns. I was, um, a a while ago, I I was doing my early morning quiet time. It was quite a few years ago, um, uh, and I woke up early, and I was reading about the second coming of the Lord Jesus in my Bible. I can't even remember what passage it was. But as I read about it, I thought, the things that are being said here about the world that is to come when Christ returns are amazing. And so I just began to pray. I said, Lord, it would be better for me if you returned. So please come, Lord Jesus. Maybe come right now. Come right now because your word tells me that it would be good for me. And as I'm praying that, outside was an enormous noise, huge noise. And and how did I respond? Totally freaked out. It was the garbage guys coming to pick pick the garbage up. But once I had calmed down, my blood pressure balanced off a little bit, I thought about that. What did my reaction tell me? It told me that I wanted to stay. Didn't it? Because I think that I am more happy here than with him. There were things that I wanted to do. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be with Jesus because I believed 
I mean, if you'd given me a test and I'd been asked, is it better to be with Christ or to stay here? I'd say, well, obviously to be with Christ. But actually, in that moment where I thought he was coming, I, 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 no, I want to stay here. The 20th century theologian C.S. Lewis put it like this. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you know, their approaches for all who are ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, a day of, un- of unfathomable, unparalleled glory. When all remaining lawlessness will be defeated... And the whole world will be brought under the perfect reign of God, our King. And on that day, there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more tears. We will be perfectly and forever happy. So let's now return to our first question. Why should we live godly lives? This is such a critical question because so many people answer this in ways such as to make God happy with us. We live godly lives to make God accept us. We cannot say loudly enough this morning that that is the wrong answer. If that is your motivation, to make God love you, you will never change. You will never find godliness happening in your life. Paul tells us that grace, undeserved love, based on nothing that we have done, motivates us to live godly lives. He says in verse 12, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why? It's because grace shares with us the secret of being happy. The pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of obedience to the rule of Christ in our lives. Did you get that? That's so important. Let me say that again. The pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of obedience to the rule of Christ in our lives. For it is there, bowing at the feet of Jesus, worshipping him with our finances, with our sexual ethics, with our jobs, with our family life, it is there that we find true, deep happiness. And so, whilst we wait for the day when we will experience in full measure, the rule of God in our lives, we want to experience more of that today. We are motivated to experience more of the happiness of the rule of God in the present. Oh, that we, as a church, would grasp the happiness 
of the Lordship of Christ. May God, by his Spirit, help us to see that today. May we be people who help one another to see that every day and to step into this deeper experience of the happiness of God's grace as we submit our lives to him. One final thought then before we close. And it's a thought that runs throughout the book of Titus. As we corporately submit to the Lordship of Christ in our lives, as our relationships together as the church begin to look uh, less and less like the world and more and more like the world to come, people around us begin to notice. And in that moment, as they observe the community of the church that is being changed as we submit to the Lordship of Jesus... They see a glimpse, an imperfect glimpse, of the world that they want. They see where true happiness is found. Now, allow me to briefly illustrate perhaps how this might, just one way that this looks in contemporary America. Recent events in this country highlight to us that there is a significant racial divide in our society. And right now, many people are crying out for racial equality and unity. We hear that, don't we? We see it on our news channels. If you have Twitter, you see it there. Now, did you notice that little phrase in verse 11? Look, look down on me for a second. Christ brings salvation to all people. Let me read to you from Revelation 7. It is a picture of the world that we all want. Uh, the Apostle John is writing in Revelation chapter 7, and he says this. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture of the world that is to come. And there is no ethnic or racial divide. Every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, are united under the lordship of Jesus. And you know what? That day is coming. As surely as I stand before you this morning, that day is coming. But it's not here yet, is it? It's not here yet. There is only one person who can heal the deep wounds of racism in a divided society. And it's not the president, nor is it any pastor or community leader or any one of us, though we all have 
a small part to play. The only person who can unite the nations is the one who rules all of them. And his name is Jesus. So we wait for that day when we will receive the world that we all want. But until that day, brothers and sisters, until that day, we train for the world to come. We pursue happiness. We allow grace to change us. We, the church at Cactus Campus, must seek to grow in diversity and unity. As we do that, in a small but powerful way, we show the lie of the serpent to be exactly that, a lie. Because it is a great thing to live under the lordship of Christ our King. It is where true happiness is found. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. I thank you, O oh Lord, that it speaks a word of grace to us. And I confess this morning, Father, on behalf of us all, that we are not the people that you have called us to be. We have, in many ways, believed the lie of the enemy that you are not a good king. Forgive us, Lord. We know that it is an act of high treason, worthy of eternal judgment. And yet we praise you this morning, O oh, gracious God of heaven, because grace appeared. Christ bled and died to reassert his kingship in our lives. And so we do not live each day fearing what is to come, but we know that the world that will come is the world that we all want. For Jesus will be king, lawlessness will be defeated, and we will all be perfectly and forever happy. So we praise you. As we have sung earlier, oh, praise the name of the Lord Most High. Praise his name forevermore. Father, your word tells us that the happiest place in all the earth is bowing at the feet of Jesus. So make us such a people this morning. Make us such a people who submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And may many see the transforming power of grace changing us. For your honor and glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to see you. If, if there's anything that has been said this morning uh, that you'd like prayer for, then there'll be a number of people down here at the front. We'd love just to talk to you and uh, pray with you through that now. Rick always closes by saying, let, let love be genuine. 
hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We love you. Have a great week. See you next week.